Well, one of the great things about living where we do in central Virginia is that there are many, many beautiful hikes within just a short driving distance of us. I don't know how many of you are into hiking or have been into hiking in your past, but the Appalachian Trail uh, runs through Virginia, not far from us at all. In fact, I found out this week that uh, the Appalachian Trail, over 2,000 miles long, goes from Maine to Georgia, and what I found out this week I didn't know was that there are more miles of the Appalachian Trail in Virginia than of any other state. West Virginia has the fewest, four, which I don't blame them for not making the trail go through there. <laughs> Pastor Farrell's not here, so I can do that sort of thing. And as spring gets closer, no doubt some of you who are into hiking are going to get out your hiking boots that have been sitting there all winter, and you're going to get your camping gear ready to go, and you're going to go out and you're going to enjoy God's creation and make an afternoon or maybe a weekend of going onto some of these trails, hiking these different hills that are around here, and just enjoying that. Well, imagine for me, even if you're not into hiking this morning, imagine for, with me for a moment this morning that you're hiking through the woods, maybe in a month or so, it's early spring, and you're just walking along, enjoying the sounds of nature as nature recovers from the polar vortex type of winter that we've had this year. And as you're walking along, obviously there's animal sounds everywhere. And suddenly you begin to notice that the animal sounds are beginning to be drowned out by sort of a dull roar that's getting louder and louder as you continue down the trail. Every step you take, it gets noisier and noisier. You come around a bend in the trail and you're face to face with a rather wide river that's in front of you. Now, when you look at this river, it's too wide to jump across it, and the water is moving at a pretty quick pace, and so trying to swim it is not probably the best idea. Not only is it moving at a quick pace, but it's early spring, and so the runoff of maybe some of the snow from the mountains has gone into the river, and it looks pretty cold at first glance. And you're pretty sure that you aren't in the mood to swim a river that appears to be in the upper 30s or lower 40s, especially with your backpack and your clothes on. It doesn't look like there's a way across the river at first glance either. And that's unfortunate because you don't really want to turn back. I mean, you've been enjoying the hike and you'd like to continue on. And so you walk down the edge of the river and you notice maybe 100 yards or so down the river that there is a bridge that crosses the river. And at a distance, the bridge looks pretty old. It looks like it's been there for quite some time. And when you first see it, you're, you're really not sure, is this bridge going to hold me if I try to walk across this bridge? Is it going to support my weight if I step out onto it? Now, as you're thinking through that scenario, I have a question that I want to pose to you, and it might seem like a silly question at first. When you see that bridge and you're not sure if it's going to hold your weight, what is it that you do in that moment to determine if the bridge will hold your weight? What do you do? That's the question. Let me give you one really bad strategy for trying to determine if the bridge will hold your weight. One really 
foolish thing to do would be to stand there, look down at the ground, and say to yourself over and over again, I believe that the bridge will hold my weight. I believe that the bridge will hold my weight. That's not going to get you very far in your evaluation of whether the bridge is going to hold your weight or not. So what do you do? Well, you probably know the answer, but for starters, you get as close as you can to the bridge. You probably get on your hands and knees. You look under the bridge to see if the support system that's there is old. Maybe it's made out of metal, and so you look to see if it's rusty. If there are ropes on the bridge, maybe the handrails, you look to see if those handrails are torn, if there's shards of, of rope hanging off. You look at the, the wood, the boards that are on the, the walkway of the bridge, and you look at those and you, you see if there are any holes in them. Do they look like it's rotten wood, maybe wet spots here or there that might not hold you as you walk across the bridge? Do these boards look like they're going to, to bend when I step on them? Or do they look like they're going to hold firm when I step on them? Here's the bottom line. When you come up to that bridge, if you want to determine if the bridge will hold you, you do not look inward at yourself. You don't examine your own courage to cross the bridge. What you do is you examine the bridge. You look outward at the bridge. Here's my point this morning. So many Christians, and I put myself in this category so much of the time, we live frustrated, guilty, condemned Christian lives because we just aren't fully assured of God's love for us. That's the bottom line. So many believers get up every single morning and you feel like you have to earn God's favor this particular day. You feel like you have to earn God's love for you. So many believers get up every morning and we just aren't confident that the bridge is going to hold us. And when you doubt God's love, that leads to a whole plethora of spiritual problems and issues. And I don't want any of us to doubt God's love this morning at all. But the bigger problem that I want to address is that when you find yourself doubting God's love, which we're all going to have that happen to us, you're going to, you're going to fall into times of, of doubt and of disbelief. When you have that happen to you, oftentimes all of us try to remedy the situation in the wrong way. Instead of looking at the bridge, instead of turning our gaze outward to the love of God, we pull our backpack out and we start rummaging through it and we try to figure out what cool things we have in our backpack. What have I done this week to impress God? We start to think about the previous part of the hike and we examine what we had for lunch as if that will somehow get us across the bridge and will assure us that the bridge will hold us. The bottom line is, is that we turn our spiritual gaze inward rather than outward to look at the bridge. One author described it this way. And the quote should be on the screen. Many saints have no greater burden in their lives than that they 
their hearts do not constantly delight and rejoice in God. There is still in them a resistance to walking close to God or with God. The more we see of God's love, so much more shall we delight in Him. And all that we learn of God will only frighten us away from Him if we do not see Him as loving and merciful to us. But if your heart is taken up with the Father's love as the chief property of His nature, it cannot help but choose to be overpowered, conquered, and embraced by Him. So do this. Set your thoughts on the eternal love of the Father and see if your heart is not aroused to delight in Him. Sit down for a while at this delightful spring of living water and you will soon find its streams sweet and delightful. You who used to run from God will not now be able, even for a second, to keep at any distance from Him. This morning, I don't want you to feel guilty because this week you've been taking your backpack out and looking through it and trying to figure out what you've done to impress God. Alright? This morning, I'm not trying to heap condemnation on any of us. Here's what I want you to do this morning. I want you to think of this text that we're going to look at. Romans 5, 5-8. I want you to think of this text as the Apostle Paul standing by you on the side of the river saying, Look! At the bridge. Look at the bridge. That's what you need to do. Stop worrying about what's in your backpack and what type of shoes you have on. Forget what you had for lunch and get your eyes on the bridge. So if you're not there, open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 through 8 is what we're going to look at this morning. Now, admittedly, Verse 5 is kind of a funny place to start in our study this morning. We're not only jumping in the middle of Paul's argument, we're also jumping in the middle of a sentence. And it's not normally a wise idea to jump in the middle of a sentence. I'm sure you've had the experience before of walking into a room and having two friends talking about you And they stop when you walk in and you feel awkward because you came in in the middle of the conversation. It's a little bit awkward. Well, we want to avoid the awkwardness this morning of jumping into the middle of the sentence. All right? So let me try to clarify where we're at here really quickly. You know the book of Romans. The book of Romans is Paul's clarification of the gospel. In chapter 4, in his clarification, he's discussing the topic of justification by faith, okay? Now, you all are good Bible students, and you understand that that word, justification, that topic, means that God has proclaimed, has declared us righteous. He has declared us. It's a proclamation that we are now in a right standing with Him. Justification doesn't mean that we're actually righteous in our hearts. It doesn't mean that you're not going to sin anymore. It just means that from God's perspective, and I say just as if this isn't a big deal, it means from God's perspective that you and I are now righteous. We're declared righteous. We have the same status as Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes in chapter 5, he makes a transition here. And the transition is now he's going to begin describing the benefits, the resources that are ours because of that declaration of righteousness. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, right? That's what he's just been talking about. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that you are justified based on that fact now means that you have peace with God. Now, this is not talking about an internal feeling of peace, although no doubt that happens to believers. This is talking about a peace treaty. The warring is over. God no longer looks on you as an enemy. Now He looks on you as a friend. Look at some of the other benefits. and I mean, we could spend a whole sermon on each one of these, but look at some of these other benefits. Verse 2. Here's another one. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith or our access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now we have access into grace, into God's good favor because of our justification. We stand in that grace. Verse 2 also says, and we exult, we exult in hope of the glory of God. Now, since we've been declared righteous, since we have peace with God, now we look on His glory, His character, as a good thing. We rejoice in His character. We no longer fear it in the sense that His wrath will come down upon us. But these benefits also impact, in a very big way, impact daily life. Look at verse 3. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. Now, because of our justification, the difficulties of this present life are turned into opportunities for hope. Look at this chain that he spells out in verses 3 and 4. We exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And verse 5, and hope does not disappoint. And here's why hope does not disappoint. And this is where we're going to start this morning. Hope does not disappoint because ultimately one of the benefits of our justification is that we are now aware of the love of God for us. Look at verse 5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This awareness, okay, this awareness of God's love is now inevitable for you if you're a believer. It's going to happen. It's inevitable like a Mac computer user thinks he's better than everyone else. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. This is inevitable. I have a Mac too, so... It's inevitable, right? God's love, an awareness of God's love is going to flow from your justification. That's what's going to happen. And as we look at this verse and as we begin to think about God's love and the benefit that an awareness of God's love is because of our justification, here's what we're going to look at this morning, okay? 
we're going to see four descriptions of God's love that build our love. Okay, so four descriptions of God's love that build our love by fixing our attention on God. Alright, I'll say it one more time because I don't think it's on the screen. Four descriptions of God's love that build our love by fixing our attention on the bridge, on God. By getting our attention away from ourselves and putting our attention where it needs to be. Now, each of these descriptions, we're going to begin with God's love is. All right. And so the first one you should see on the screen, it says God's love is dispensed by the Spirit. It's dispensed by the Spirit. And that's what verse, that's the point verse 5 is making for us. And let me just say at the beginning of this first description here, this first description is kind of like the umbrella. Okay, this is the vehicle in which the other three descriptions ride along. Okay, this first description is how the other three descriptions come to us. It's by what we're going to see here in in verse 5. All right, you can see in verse 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just make it clear here. This is not talking about our love for God. Okay? You can kind of take this one way, or two ways, right? You could see this as our love for God being poured into our hearts, or you can see this as God's love being poured into our hearts. If you can see it as God's love, being, we being made aware of God's love. And that's how you need to take this. Paul here is describing God's love toward us. God's love for us doesn't change based on our performance this particular week. But our awareness of God's love does grow. That's a wonderful thing about the Christian life. You initially begin to love God at the moment of salvation, but your love for God and and your awareness of His love begins to grow more and more. And it begins to grow more and more, your awareness, as the Holy Spirit makes you sensitive to God's love. As the Holy Spirit puts on display God's love. Let me explain it this way. I've only been a coffee drinker for about a year and a half. Okay, uh, Ironically enough, started drinking coffee when our third child, Stella, was born. don't know if they go together, but that's when it happened. Some of the descriptions that you find of coffee are, frankly, hilarious to me. Listen to this. Who writes like this? Okay, here's, here's one description of a medium blend of coffee. Rich chocolate notes livened up with sweet berry and tangy acidity, offering a bittersweet finish to this superb blend. Well, that's quite a description, okay? When I started drinking coffee... Rich chocolate notes uh, tasted more like liquid dirt to me most of the time. I was not detecting any rich chocolate notes in coffee most of the time. Now, though, I will say that after only a year and a half, I can start to pick up the differences. I can tell when I'm drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee and when I'm drinking Starbucks coffee. One is burnt, one is not. 
I can pick up now the aftertaste. I can tell. This tastes different than this. I can pick up the subtle flavorings in the coffee. And I'm telling you that that is exactly what happens with our experience of God's love. Our awareness of His love. As you look at the bridge more and more, as you examine God's love more and more, you start to pick up the details. You start to see the nuances in God's love. You, you grow in your appreciation of God's love. And that's a beautiful thing when that happens. Of course, you're aware of God's love at the first moment of salvation. And that's what Paul is describing here. But he's also saying... Daily, weekly, monthly, year after year, as you stand there and look at the bridge, your awareness of God's love grows more nuanced. It grows more detailed. You start to pick up things you didn't see before. And you realize just how much this God loves you. Paul says that's one of the benefits of our justification. That's one of the things that we get as a, result, as a result of being justified. Now, if you look back at verse 5, this awareness of God's love happens because of the Holy Spirit. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And when you read this, you need to ask the question, why is this pouring? Why is this work of making us aware of God's love, why is this the task of the Holy Spirit? Why is He the one who does this? What is it about the Holy Spirit who brings Him to do this particular work? And let me tell you, this is one of, if not the main works of the Holy Spirit. This is what He does. So what, what is it about Him that brings Him to do this? Let me encourage you to get your, your little water wings and your swimmies on here because we're going to go deep for a minute, all right? Within the Trinity, each of the different persons of the Trinity has a different role. I think you, you, we all understand that, okay? The Father, God the Father, is the initiator. He's the sender, okay? He makes the plans, God the Son is the one who responds to those plans. He obeys the Father. You see that throughout the Gospels. He is the one who is sent by the Father. So, what's the role of the Holy Spirit within the triunity of God? What does He do? We so often forget about the Holy Spirit. And we don't think about His work. Especially His role within the Godhead. So what is his role? Here's how I would say it. His role has always been, even in eternity past, to communicate the love between the Father and the Son. He's the go-between. He's the one that makes the love from the Father absolutely clear to the Son. He communicates that love. He's the conduit. And he's a person. He's not a force. He's not a thing. He's a person. And he communicates that love back and forth between the Father and the Son. Think about it this way. What happened at the baptism of Jesus? Well, at the baptism of Jesus, God the Father sent the Spirit 
onto the Son. And what did God the Father say when He did that? This is my beloved Son. The Spirit is the communication piece of love from the Father to the Son. Here's how one author described the baptism of Christ. And hopefully this will bring clarity to this. Here, at the baptism, the Father declares His love for His Son and His pleasure in Him. And He does so as the Spirit rests on Jesus. For the way the Father makes known His love is precisely through giving His Spirit. I hope you get that. For the way the Father makes known His love is precisely through giving His Spirit. It is all deeply personal. The Spirit stirs up the delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father, inflaming their love and so binding them together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 13. He, the Holy Spirit, is the Spirit of unity, right? He brings people together. He brings the Father and Son together. He's the communication piece. He's the communicator of love. So, it makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit would act in line, in accordance with His nature. This is what, this is what He does. Our son Cole will ask us sometimes, Daddy, why is God so loving? That's who He is, son. That's His nature. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is His nature. He's always done this. Now, here is the glorious truth. Alright? Are you ready for this? Now, you and I have been adopted as sons. We're sons. Right there with Jesus Christ. We're in Him. We're in the family now. And there's no greater blessing of salvation than being adopted into God's family. And once we're in the family, God the Father sends His Spirit on us and communicates His love to us. That's what happens to us. Now, we have the Spirit, and the Spirit openly and consistently and faithfully communicates the love of the Father to us who are sons. He pours it out. Another author said this, It is by the Spirit that the Father has eternally loved His Son. And so, by sharing their Spirit with us, the Father and the Son share with us their own life, love, and fellowship. By the Spirit uniting me to Christ, the Father knows and loves me as His Son. By the Spirit, I begin to know and love Him as my Father. By the Spirit, I begin to love aright. Unbending me from my self-love, He wins me to share the Father's pleasure in the Son and the Son's in the Father. By the Spirit, I, slowly, begin to love as God loves. With His own generous, overflowing, self-giving love for others. This is the work that the Spirit does. So, If this, communicating the love of God, is the task of the Holy Spirit, we need to ask another question. How does He accomplish this task? What does He do? How does He make the love of God known to us? 
if our hearts are like a bucket and the Holy Spirit is the one pouring the love of God into our hearts, what, which is exactly what it says in verse 5, what is the pitcher that He uses to pour that love into our hearts? How does He do it? Well, there are certain truths that consistently communicate the love of God to us. There are certain doctrines, if you will, that as we think about those things, as we meditate and contemplate those things and learn of them, those truths are what the Holy Spirit uses to pour the awareness of God's love into our hearts. And it's the Spirit's work to help us to rejoice and to recognize God's love throughout our Christian lives. And those truths that are the picture, that's what's spelled out in verses 6, 7, and 8. Those truths are these next three descriptions of God's love. All right? The second one is that God's love is directed toward the undeserving. This is in verse 6. It's directed toward the undeserving. These are very familiar verses to you. All right? You can see at the beginning of verse 6, Paul uses the word for. And as good Bible students, I hope you understand that that word means in most instances, that he is explaining what he has just said in verse 5. Alright, so he's saying this is true. The Holy Spirit pours the love of God, the Father, out on believers. And here's how he does that. Here are the truths that communicate that love to us. Here's how that fresh awareness of God's love lands on us and fills our hearts. This second description of God's love found in verse 6 is something that we need to understand. And we need to think carefully about how God's love is not directed toward the best and the brightest at all. Look what Paul says in verse 6. For while we were still weak, some of your Bibles say, helpless, some of your Bibles say, Our recognition of God's love, our awareness of God's love deepens and broadens when we see that His love was fixed on us while we were still weak, while we were still helpless. We use the word weak to describe a lot of different things. But I think kind of the idea Paul has going on here is he has the idea of a baby here in some ways. Now, certainly this morning, if I were to go into the nursery over here and were to challenge all of the babies there to an arm wrestling competition, despite the skinny size of my biceps, I think I would probably win because babies are generally weak, all right? But Paul here is not talking about comparative strength. What he's describing here is that we are completely incapable of doing what's good. We are helpless. We are without hope. Babies are generally good for three things. You may be able to think of some more, but here's the three I came up with, all right? Babies are good for screaming, they're good for pooping, and they're good for looking cute, right? That's what babies are good for. Generally, babies don't make pizzas. Generally, babies don't carry luggage. 
Generally, babies don't do a lot of things because they're helpless, they're weak, they're incapable of functioning as an adult would function. That's the situation they're in. They cannot take care of themselves. And that's how Paul describes us here. We could not do this thing spiritually. And thankfully, God did not wait for us to develop the capacity to love Him and to experience His love. He didn't wait for it because it was impossible for us to develop that capacity. We were helpless. We didn't have the ability to do that at all. The very inclination of our hearts was away from Him and against Him completely. And verse 6 says that it was at the right time. It was at the exact moment when we needed it that God had a plan to send Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we're going to discuss the work of Christ a little bit more when we get to verse 8. But there's another way that Paul describes us in verse 6 that I want you to look at. He says, For while we were still helpless or weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. We use the term ungodly a lot to describe a lot of different people, a lot of different activities. And a lot of times I don't think of the implications of what it means to be ungodly. What does that mean? Well, I think most fundamentally it means that the ungodly man has a lack of reverence for God. He is irreverent toward God. I attended two funerals this week. And there's a certain demeanor and a certain way of dress and a certain certain activities that you do at a funeral and certain activities that you don't do at a funeral because you want to show reverence to the family because of their loved one. And if you were to act irreverently at a funeral, you would be showing that you really don't regard the needs of the family. You really just don't care what they think or what they're going through or their desires. To be ungodly means that I live my life in such a way that I'm irreverent toward God. I don't care what He wants. I don't care what He thinks. I have no regard for the God of the universe. He isn't even on my radar. That's what it means to be ungodly. Rather than living with respect and godly fear toward Him, I live like I don't, I don't care what He wants. Let me say too, it's not just an apathetic attitude toward God. It's actually a hostile attitude toward God. I am actively trying to be irreverent toward God when I am ungodly. Instead of regarding Him, I regard myself very highly. That's what it means to be ungodly. And that is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. They turned from love and obedience to God the Father... And instead, they they turned inward on themselves. They were created, Adam and Eve, like a finely tuned, laser-guided level. Perfectly fitted for the task that they were assigned. But when they sinned, they they were twisted and bent and, and turned inward. And now, 
They're still made in God's image, and we're still made in God's image, but we're messed up. We're twisted and bent, all out of shape. Now we're turned inward rather than outward. Human beings are the consummate navel gazers. That's our nature now. We love ourselves. We love to think about ourselves, and ultimately we love to worship ourselves. And here's the thing about God's love. God's love didn't begin when we got ourselves straightened out. When we got ourselves untwisted and bent back in the right shape. That's not when God's love for us began. God didn't start caring for us when we suddenly recognized our own corruption and made a decision to go after Him. Look what verse 6 says. For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How do we become more and more aware of God's love? How do we do it? You meditate on the truths expounded in verse 6. You consider where you were and where you are now because of the work of Christ. I know you've heard this verse, you've heard these principles a thousand times, but we need to take these truths of verse 6 and meditate on them so much that we begin to bleed this reality that I was ungodly and I was weak and helpless and at the right time, God extended His love toward me. This needs to sink down into our gut and change the way we see the world. And that leads us to our third description of God's love. This one is in verse 7. God's love is dispensed by the Spirit. It is directed toward the undeserving. And God's love is deeper than human love. Verse 7. I told you a few minutes ago that um, our sinful nature causes us to turn in on ourselves. It causes us to be self-centered And I think that natural self-centeredness leads us to even see theological truths with us at the center of them. So when we think about God's justice or God's sovereignty or God's love even, we tend to start with man, with us, rather than starting with God. So when we think about God's love, a lot of times what we tend to do is we tend to start with the concept of human love and sort of work our way to what we imagine God must be like because of the way we experience love in this life. Verse 7 is Paul's desire to flip that on its head. It's his desire to help us to understand human love and then to put it in its proper context. Look what he says in verse 7. For, and this is expanding on verse 6 and verse 5, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. Now, this is obviously linking verses 6 and 7. Let me try to explain what's going on here. In verse 7, you see two different kind of groupings of men here, okay? You see a righteous man... And you also see a good man, okay? There's these two types of people here, all right? And Paul is describing normal human love here, okay? You can see in verse 7, he says, for one, one person, one human, just 
one um, of the uh, of mankind. Okay, the, one individual, and then he goes on to explain this righteous man and this good man. All right, here's what he says about the righteous man. It would be very rare in this life to find an individual who would sacrifice himself for a righteous man. For scarcely for a righteous man would someone give his life. Would someone dare to die? Okay? This would be unusual. In normal human love, it would be difficult to find somebody who was going to pay the ultimate price and give up his life for a righteous man. This type of sacrifice would be pretty unusual to find. Who is this righteous guy that he's talking about here? Well, this would be someone who is who's worthy of respect. This would be an individual who is virtuous. This would be a good person. I mean, this guy does a lot of right things. It's, it's not saying that he necessarily has a righteous standing before God, but this is a moral person. Think of this as Billy Graham, okay? I don't know Billy Graham personally. I've never met Billy Graham. But from what I understand, from what I've read and seen, Billy Graham is an upright individual. I mean, the guy's a moral guy. I mean, he's been walking with Christ for a long time. He is virtuous. He has good character. The point of Paul saying the righteous man here is that this is someone that has good character, but it's not someone that you have personal interaction with. Billy Graham is, I'm sure, a great guy if I were to meet him personally, but I'm honestly not sure I'm going to sacrifice my life at this point for Billy Graham. I just don't think, I mean, it would be rare to find someone who would be willing, a one-on-one exchange. It would be rare to find someone who would do that sort of thing in human love. Most of us wouldn't even consider it. But look at the rest of verse 7. He kind of ups the ante here. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Good here implies all the things that we just said about righteous, but this is someone that you know personally. This is someone who you're acquainted with. Most of us, many of us, would think long and hard about this. I mean, human love, most of the time, would lead you to consider sacrificing your own life for someone that you know and love personally. I mean... If they have good character, if they're upright, if they're virtuous, most of us would consider that. We would put the possibility on the table and we would evaluate it. It's even what Paul says here. Perhaps, maybe, probably, someone close to me was in that type of situation and I could sacrifice my life and save them. There's a decent chance that that might happen and that most of you would do that as well. That's human love. There's nothing wrong with human love. That's human love. That's how we are. But human love is nothing like God's love. That brings us to our fourth description here. God's love is demonstrated in the substitutionary sacrifice. Human love is nothing like God's love because look in verse 8 at how God's love is described. But God. In contrast to human love, although human love is not bad, and some of you may be willing to give your lives as a sacrifice for another, but God 
demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were not good, not righteous, we were ungodly, we were helpless, we were still sinners. That's God's love. Christ died for us. The contrast here is the contrast between the Blue Ridge Mountains and the Himalayas. Human love is not bad, but it's nothing compared to the majestic heights of God's love. We don't evaluate God's love based on human love. We start with God's love. And we see His love clearly displayed in the sacrifice of Christ. I want you to think carefully through verse 8 with me for a minute here. Paul says that God demonstrates this love. Who's he talking about here? When you read the word God in Scripture, a lot of times we just sort of think generically God. But here, I think he's talking about God the Father. It doesn't mean that Christ doesn't love. But I think he's specifically mentioning the love of God the Father here. God the Father demonstrated His love by sending His Son. He was under no compulsion to do this. He acted freely in His own sovereignty when we were helpless and sent His beloved Son. Earlier we talked about how the Spirit communicates the love between the Father and the Son. Listen, that is something that has been happening since eternity past. And that relationship between the Father and the Son is the paradigm, the original loving relationship. That is the starting point. There's no relationship closer than the relationship amongst the members of the Trinity. Go read John 17 if you... If you're unsure about that, but my goodness, God the Father and God the Son had always existed in a relationship of love and communion and enjoyment for ages and ages before anything was created. But God showed His love to us by sending that beloved one. By sending that one that He'd always enjoyed communion with by pouring out His anger for sin on that Beloved One for us. That whole plan of sending Christ for sinners, that is a demonstration of God's love. When it says here that God demonstrated His love, God God teaches us. God shows us. He exhibits His love. He, he proves His love to us through that. Confession time here. Okay? I really like aquariums and zoos. A lot. My wife had no idea that when she married me, that on our first anniversary, I was going to take her to the San Diego Zoo and force her to walk around all day and see the animals. Husband of the year. Right here. Of course, now that we've had children, our children love them as well. Most kids do. Last summer, our family had the opportunity to go to the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta, Georgia. And if you've never been there, if you don't know anything about the Georgia Aquarium, it's literally the largest aquarium in the world. I checked. There's nowhere else even close. Okay? Biggest in the world. They have one tank at the Georgia Aquarium that is so big, 
it's 6.3 million gallons of water. I can't even get my mind around that number. It's so big that there are whale sharks swimming in it. Multiple, huge, massive, 30-foot-long fish. It's unbelievable. Now, obviously, you can't see the whole tank at once. It's just too big. It's too... It's just a monstrosity. It's, it's massive. and You can't see the whole thing at once. And so what they've done is you go into this room and they have an entire wall that's, that's acrylic glass and it's super thick and it's clear and it's 10 feet tall by 30 feet wide of glass. And you go in this room and you can see into this tank. And there's, it, it, it's so big and it's just an amazing sight. They actually have seats there. Have all this room. It's like a little amphitheater. And you can go in there and you can sit down and you can watch the fish swim around. Now, for some of you, that sounds like a horrible way to spend an afternoon. But for my kids and I, it's just a fun thing to do. Now listen, here's why Paul uses this word demonstrate here. That's exactly what he's talking about. This is how God has displayed his love. This is This is us sitting down and looking at the work of Christ and just spending the afternoon enjoying what we see in front of us. It's exactly the same idea here. If you want to grow in your awareness of God's love for you, sit down and view this exhibit. View this showcase. Sit down and enjoy. What is it that we're looking at, though? What, what's in front of us? What's through the acrylic glass here that we're staring at? Look at the rest of verse 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we talked about that earlier, He helped us when we were helpless. But here's what we're staring at. Here's the exhibit that we're looking at. Verse 8. Christ died for us. That is the bottom line. That's the exhibit that we're staring at. If you want to grow in your awareness of God's love, spend time in those four little words there. God the Father loved us when we were weak and helpless, and He devised a plan and put that plan in motion and sent His beloved Son on a mission. And the beloved Son willingly came on the mission and gladly gave His life for us. He took our sin on Himself and He suffered the wrath of God. And now we, because of His substitutionary sacrifice, go free. Listen to what one author had to say about this. The very beholding of Christ is a transforming sight. The Spirit that makes us new creatures and stirs us up to behold this servant, it is a transforming beholding. A man cannot look upon the love of God and of Christ and the Gospel, but it will change him to be like God and Christ. For how can we see Christ and God in Christ, but we shall see how God hates sin? And this will transform us to hate it as God doth, who hated it so that it could not be expiated, but with the blood of Christ God-man. So, seeing the holiness of God in it, it will transform us to be holy. 
here's the kicker. When we see the love of God in the Gospel and the love of Christ giving Himself for us, this will transform us to love God. Do you know what makes your love for God grow? Why is this so hard? Why do we struggle with it? It's an awareness of His love for us that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And how does the Spirit do that? These four words. Doctrine. It's what it is. It's these truths that are expounded in Scripture. It's good, solid, right doctrine. There is no more doctrinal statement in existence than these words. Christ died for us. Doctrine is not cold and dead and lifeless. If your experience of doctrine is that it is boring and just a waste of time, then you are doing it wrong. You are bringing a baseball bat to the golf course and complaining about how frustrating it is to play this game. You are trying to grill your steak with a pocket lighter and saying it doesn't taste right. You're doing it wrong. Think about these words. Go to this exhibit. Christ died for us. The objective facts of Christ's death create, through the Spirit, the subjective response. The love and the affection that comes out of us. Most of you would know the name John Bunyan. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress and a lot of other things. When John Bunyan was in prison... He had some opponents who thought that really he wasn't, wasn't teaching quite right. And one of the things that the opponents got on John Bunyan for was they told him that he was emphasizing God's love too much. And Honestly, people, people will still say that. You're emphasizing God's love too much. Here's what his opponents said to him. They said, if you keep assuring the people of God of God's love, they will do whatever they want. And that's a common, common argument against talking about grace a lot and talking about God's unconditional love a lot. Man, if you talk about that, people are going to do whatever they want to. They'll think, God loves me. Why does it matter what I do? He's going to keep loving me anyway. We know what John Bunyan said in response to that. Listen to this. If I assure God's people of His love, then they will do whatever He wants. That's the bottom line for us. This is not a free pass to go and do whatever you want to do. Man, if you get in touch with this and look at this exhibit, it's going to fundamentally change you and your desires are going to be to do whatever God wants. And that is spiritual growth in the first place. It's not this sort of moralistic outward reform where suddenly I do the right things on the outside. Real spiritual growth is this. It's doing what God wants you to do because you want to do what He wants you to do. Because you love Him and you've seen His love and you've experienced His love. That's spiritual growth. So this morning, look at the bridge. Stop looking in your backpack this week. Stop looking at your shoes. Take your eyes off of yourself and become enamored with this 
doctrine, with this picture of the love of God that's displayed here. This, this is the only path to victory over greed, worry, fear, lust, doubt, you name it. This is the way to overcome that. Want what He wants by coming face to face with His love for us. Be assured of God's love for you as it's explained and expressed in the Gospel. That will change you and make you a new person and shape you to do what He wants you to do and not what you want anymore. Let's pray.